0: Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of SJ Explain. Happy New Year to all our listeners. It has been an interesting 2020 and we're super excited about 2021. And actually our first episode of the year. We're starting out strong. We're going to be talking about the Women's Charter. And unfortunately, Elliot is out sick today, so he's not able to come on the show. But we have an exciting guest. It's my pleasure to introduce Margaret Thomas from AWARE. Margaret has had 30 years of print and online media experience, including senior editing positions at the Business Times, the Singapore Monitor, and Today. And she was even in the founding team for Asia One, SPH's internet arm. She now works in various book and media projects. And uh, Margaret was actually one of the founding members of AWARE back in 1984 and 85. And over the last three decades, she's served on many of its committees. Margie, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Hi. Good. It's hard to believe it's actually a new year. We are all glad to see 2020 go.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Being a founding member of AWARE is no joke. What was your inspiration in starting AWARE and how have you seen your role evolve all the way till today?
1: AWARE came about uh, because a whole bunch of people in Singapore and particularly graduate women were very... Angry, very annoyed about the sexist, uh, elitist, and eugenicist policies that prevailed in the mid 1980s. In 1983, the then Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew made this rather controversial National Day rally speech in which he pointed to the, uh, the fact that graduate women were either not getting married or getting married late and not having children. He was very concerned that if uh, graduate women, in other words, educated women and therefore bright women, were not marrying and, and were not having children, then our talent pool would be depleted. Basically, it's a eugenicist argument. Right. And this spawned a whole bunch of policies um, that were discriminatory. On the other side, there were some schemes to discourage less educated women, less educated couples from having too many children. A lot of people were upset about this. There was a lot of uh, letters in the media and so on following that speech and following the rollout of these schemes. So in November 1984, two women, uh, Zaibun Seraj, who was active at the uh, Graduate um, Society, NUS Society, and Vivian We, a uh, sociologist, they organized a forum called Women's Lives, Women's Choices, and invited five women to speak. We didn't really know each other. So after the seminar over tea, we decided that we needed to do more than just Then the state of unhappiness that we needed to see, you know, if you're unhappy about policies and you you are part of the elite, you're, you're educated, you've got the skills and so on. How do you try and make your points? How do you try and convince the policymakers that these are not the right policies? So that's how we started talking. And a year later, we registered AWARE. In November 1985.
0: That's a really fascinating story. And most Singaporeans who have spent a decent amount of time reading the news and paying attention to events will know that AWARE has been an instrumental part of both civil society as well as our identity in Singapore as a whole. So really, really cool. And and currently you are the president of AWARE.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I resisted um, becoming president for many years, largely because I was uh, in the media and newsroom work is quite uh, extensive, right? I was only ready to become president um, in the last few years. And this was because AWARE, took a very um, decided step towards professionalizing his operations uh, 11 years ago. This was after the Aware Saga, which dominated newspapers, the media, in um, March, April 2009. We now have a very strong team of mostly women. We have had one or two men. We used to be an executive committee, which means you were very hands-on but now that we professionalize the staff run aware to to a very large extent and the board is plays a role of governance uh, working with the senior management on strategy and uh, those kinds of issues
0: aware has recently released a series of 12 episodes. I think there are nine out there currently. Saga, yes. I've personally been binge listening to all of those episodes. <laughs> I love them. Uh, I can't wait for the last three. 10 and 11, which will be
1: released on Wednesday, cover the actual EGM, which was...
0: Pretty dramatic, worth tuning into. For sure. But today, today we're going to be focusing on a different key milestone and key key institution, I guess, of gender issues and women's issues in Singapore. And just explaining why, as you explained, we're doing this episode. I think when we look at the Singapore identity, we have to talk about gender. And there's so much to it, but we thought of the Women's Charter as a really... Good entry point to the whole topic. It's, you know, there's been a lot of debates that have either come about during the formation or in the evolution of a charter. And I thought that this would be a really, really great opportunity to understand how generations have been tackled. When the Women's Charter became law in
1: 1961, Singapore was still very much a developing country then. But it really was landmark because it put us ahead of many countries in the developed world in terms of laying out the protection for women in marriage. It came about because it was really the, the first wave of the women's movement, if we want to use that term, was during the 1950s when there was a very active group of women called the Singapore Council of Women who were lobbying for basically an end to polygamy and better legal protections for women women and children. Interestingly, this was matched in the political world because the the PAP was then in opposition, but they had in their midst uh, a number of women who were very vocal about women's issues. And in civil society, then, a group of women who were lobbying strongly the British administration, the various political parties, and other groups. When the PAP came into power, they delivered on their election promise. The PAP, in its 1959 election
0: manifesto, actually had very specific calls for women's rights. Which Which is quite progressive for that time. I was reading this book that actually, Margie, you passed to me, Our Lies to Live. Hi, yes. And in that book, it says that prior to the Singapore Women's Charter, the only other Women's Charter that existed was in South Africa. And even that wasn't the same kind of omnibus. Not laws, yeah. It wasn't a law. The declaration. So the fact that we did it, it's actually very significant and very much something to be celebrated because when we think about gender issues now, there's a lot more complexity, but we're actually working from a very, very strong foundation. Yeah, act was designed to improve and protect the rights of females in Singapore guarantee greater legal equality for women in legally sanctioned relationships, except in the areas of Muslim marriages, which are governed separately by the Administration or Muslim Law Act. But a key reason for all of this was because polygamy was a common practice and the legal rights of women were murkily defined. I cannot imagine a Singapore but polygamy existed. When Shirin
1: Fosda, she came to Singapore with her husband uh, in 1950. They, they were from India and she'd been pretty active speaking up on women's rights and social issues in India as a schoolgirl. But she and her husband came here in 1950 really to spread the Baha'i faith. What struck her and, and horrified her as she settled into Singapore society, you know, they go to social events, meet businessmen and so on, Chinese businessmen, who were there with women that she presumed were their wives, only to discover later on that, no, that was not necessarily his one and only wife, but his second or third or fourth wife or his mistress or concubine or whatever you want to call it. When she discovered that polygamy was was rife, that there was no protection, that's when she gathered together 20 or 30 prominent women from, from all communities. They registered the Singapore Council of Women in 1952 and then
0: throughout the 50s campaigned for an end to polygamy. When we think about the protections for women, the divorce rate was also pretty high. Specifically in the Malay community, the divorce rate was 60% at that time and yeah. men could arbitrarily divorce their wife. A lot of this basically created a very dangerous position because, you know, post-divorce, what actually is a woman entitled to from no that protection. marriage?
1: Precisely. So maintenance support, spousal support was, was spelt out. Of course, having a law is one thing, but implementing it is another. we have still got a lot of cases where they need to file complaints to try
0: and get the support. Let's unpack this a bit just to get the history right. Sharon Fosda, who was one of the key people you mentioned, is really one of the instrumental players from civil society who was pushing for this. And actually, she has two claims to fame amongst many others. First being... The fact that she actually convinced then Chief Minister David Marshall to help set up the Sharia Court in 1958. The court had jurisdiction over marriage and divorce in the Muslim community, and that actually led to a dramatic fall in the divorce rate in the Muslim community. For the non-Muslim community, especially for issues related to marriage, but also on on wider gender issues, that is where she was campaigning together with the rest of her team in the Singapore Council of Women's to convince the PAP to actually put the issues of women's rights within Manifesto and then eventually to pass the Women's Charter later on in 1961. She actually urged the party to pass a Women's Rights Bill in 1954, but that didn't go through, but it was used as a framework later on. Yeah, they actually came up with a draft bill, but of course it
1: went nowhere. But it did provide some a reference point for the PAP when they started working on the Women's Charter. There was an interesting connection with the Sharia court and the genesis of AWARE. One of the organizers of that seminar that led to the formation of AWARE was Saibun Siraj. Her mother Khatijun Siraj was the first counsellor. She started the Young Women's uh, Muslim Association which is now known as the PPIS, and they tried to get women to join. And this was before the Sharia court came about. And uh, women were very reluctant to join, right, because um, they were they were frightened that they would just be thrown, thrown out, divorced and thrown out. When the Sharia court came about and they were looking for a counsellor, she applied for the job and got in. It. it was very difficult. She had to persuade them and inform them of their rights and slowly they were able to
0: work to get the the divorce rate down this is one of the times that we can remember the government and civil society actually having the courage to say you know regardless of what prevailing norms are regardless of what people say they are used to we have to do what's right we have to do what's right by women we have to do what's right by society and that was where there was a lot of on one hand legislation and governance in place on the other hand also the active groundwork in order to, to bring people on board and to show them I actually how this is much better for society. It continues to be the, the main challenge.
1: You can have all the laws, but to bring about the mindset change, this is this is the critical part, and which is as relevant today as it was
0: 70 years ago. Let's just give some credits to, to the actual people within the PAP who actually managed to get the one charter in place. There was Madam Chan Choi-seong, wife of Ong Pang Boon, former Cabinet and Minister of Singapore, as well as other PAP women activists, Ho Kui Chu and Ho Su Chen, and they were critical in actually getting the Women's charter through Parliament. Uh, it was largely based on existing legislation. So they were pulling it together, yeah. Exactly. They were reenacting the civil marriage ordinance, the married women's property ordinance, the married woman and children ordinance. So there were all these different laws that already existed. They put it together and they basically tried to establish a charter that clearly indicated the rights of women.
1: Unlike the South African, which was more a charter statement of principle, the the Singapore Women's Charter spelt out women's position in Singapore in the marriage or family situation. Earlier versions of the
0: charter were not that comprehensive in terms of domestic violence. As you mentioned, the Women's Charter has been a living legislation it has been evolved over a couple of times. So some examples in 1997, there was introduction of the rule that divorcing couples had to file a parenting plan that includes arrangements on custody, access to the child in 2011, there were provisions to facilitate the enforcement of maintenance orders. And the most significant change happened in 2016, where the Women's Charter Amendment Bill was passed as a review to reflect the changing family trends in Singapore. Some of the things that were happening was there was a mandatory marriage preparation program for any marriages in which at least one of the party was below the age of 21. There was a two-hour mandatory parenting counseling for divorcing parents of at least one child younger than 14 who disagree on divorce matters. In this same act, basically men can now also apply for maintenance, but unlike for women, they can only seek maintenance if they are incapacitated, meaning they are unable to support themselves due to illness or disability. This was a very interesting debate that happened in Parliament and I actually went to to kind of dig up some of the, the conversations that were happening. There is also a very natural counter-reaction that shouldn't it be a law that addresses gender in which women's women's rights are protected, but to the extent that gender equality is achieved.
1: Aware has uh, for quite some time, others have too. Uh, suggested that the Women's Charter be renamed the Family Charter. What we want to see is gender equality, right? The provisions actually are fairly gender neutral, fairly, except for this maintenance. The reality is that women still tend to come out the worst in many marriages that fail. Renaming the Women's Charter is, is, it's, would be a good thing to do, but not critical. I think what's much more critical is that we address the the whole issue of gender equality as a society. This requires understanding that the implications of what is still primarily a patriarchal system that we have.
0: This again goes back to the key tension area in should legislation move ahead of societal norms mm-hmm. to indicate a moral courage position or should it reflect to an extent current social norms? So in 1996, you know, this issue, of course, has come on many times. In 1996, when Parliament was debating this, then Minister for Community Development, Abdullah Tamugi, basically said, as for allowing maintenance for husbands, I am of the view that the existing provisions of allowing only women to claim maintenance for men should be maintained, at least for the present. Call me old-fashioned, if you will. Call me a male chauvinist, if you must. And my upbringing and my background, tell me it is the duty of a husband to maintain his wife. There's a more recent one, and this was in the 2016 uh, parliamentary discussion where Ms. Rahayu Mazam, a family lawyer, also said, while the ministry takes steps to keep peace with societal changes, there's a need to recognize that the majority of women still lag behind their male counterparts financially. So there's a sense that, you know, even if we were to pass the law, even if we were to make this change, actually the reality is that more men are going to be needing to pay maintenance for women. On the other hand, there's a sense that, actually, at the end of the day, the decision on whether maintenance should be paid still comes back to the judge. During a divorce case, the judge will decide whether maintenance should be paid and and also how much. And actually, there's this, again, from Our Wives to Live essay written by Malati Das. She highlights the case ADB versus ADC by Justice Chuhantag, where he says the idea that women needed protection was yoked to an old attitude that should be changed. If it were to continue, even where protection is no longer needed, because in this case, the woman had earned more than her husband, it might lead to the suppression of women in the name of chivalry. If the yep. woman is truly equal and independent, she does not require, nor would she, desire patronizing gestures. These gestures belie deep chauvinistic thinking. There's a bit more, but I think that's the, that's the main point. I was just fascinated by this because I think this is a real stickler for the woman's charter and for gender races in Singapore because it seems to indicate that where the woman's shadow was birthed out of a desire to establish a moral position within the political scene and within society, now this all of a sudden has, has become an issue where, okay, we need to reflect current societal norms, even if ultimately the judge decides whether... The question really is, who
1: who decides what are the current societal norms? Can do some random surveys here and there, but uh, the validity of those surveys can be questioned. This is an issue that comes up regularly, right? Whether it is on changes to policies affecting women, like maintenance and so on, or, or the whole 377A argument. If we need Singapore to be less conservative because we need to embrace new ways of doing things, this can have an impact on what we do as, a, as an economy, should we not then be ready to put in place laws, charters or whatever that set the tone for where we should go, rather than looking at where some segments of the society
0: may still be at? It's a debate and a discussion, quite honestly, that needs to happen more. When we talk about societal norms, it's a black box that we tend to, to use as an excuse for for not jumping in and having the dialogues. And if the Women's Charter was to evolve in any way, I think that that's part of the discussion that needs to happen. One of the other spaces that I thought was important that the Women's Charter really covers is about family violence. In the Women's Charter, it provides protection for those affected by family violence, as well as staff of homes and shelters. In the case of an ugly divorce, a judge can actually summon a counselor to be present in supervising meetups between a child and a parent without custody. It also allows intervention. And I thought these were some of the important things that need to be enshrined within our laws.
1: You know, it wasn't so long ago that if there was domestic violence in the family and you couldn't show bruises or serious physical injury, the police wouldn't be able to intervene.
0: Oh, you have to show physical evidence?
1: Not, that, that's been changed. But it wasn't that long ago that police could not step in when there's physical violence if there's no evidence, physical evidence of, of, of the violence. And it was only last year, I think, that marital rape became illegal. So there's still many,
0: many areas where things need to be further improved. Now that we see them, we think of them as common sense. It's clear that marital rape is wrong and should be protected against. But why do you think there was so much resistance to passing such things back then?
1: Sounds a bit cliched, but you know, as long as we are caught in a patriarchal system, you're going to have these these kinds of issues. How would you describe
0: patriarchy? A system in where men are the dominant lens that the society Every society viewed through. Everything is, is, is male-focused, right? Man is head of the household and all.
1: The resistance to marital rape was a man has a right to a woman's body. But if you look at the incidence of date rape and sexual assault, the prevailing view
0: is still that men have a right to a woman's body when they want it. It's so frustrating to hear that that was a dominant view at a point in time because maybe I have the benefit of exposure and education and that's a privilege that I'll continue to be grateful for. But also the fact that people's lives were being affected in such a tormenting way, it just pisses me off. The incidence of sexual assault
1: continues. We're more conscious of it because of the Me Too movement, that women are reporting it more,
0: but there's still many, many cases which are not being reported. While the Women's Charter has done a lot for us, there's still a lot of things that we can continue to do. The recent changes that you mentioned, of course, seem to indicate that at least the government is being more realistic about what's happening on the ground. The issue of child custody, many male divorcees claim incorrectly that the woman's charter denies them the right to keep their children, and that because of the woman charter, custody battles will almost always end in the mother's favor. But the woman charter actually states very simply that a paramount consideration in determining custody of a child is the welfare of the child in a society. Again, as you mentioned, with women, are the main caregiver of the child. The court will often take the view that the welfare of the child demands the custody be awarded to the mother. There may be gender stereotyping, but it's not the charter. It is gender roles that are Uh, So I can see how this actually flips it, right? Because even within a patriarchal society, it hurts men. It hurts men because where you see caregiving as a joint responsibility or equal responsibility, dominant gender roles that seem to indicate that the woman should be the primary caregiver, will penalize men in in such cases as well
1: and unfortunately, individual men may be penalized now and men who really uh, should be the primary caregivers and are capable to do it but because of the prevailing sense that women are better at caregiving, men lose out. so how do we fix it? How do we get how do we get it better known that men can be
0: caregivers? And our, our good caregivers. In 2019, there was another amendment that was made to the Women's Charter, and this is another feature of the Charter about protecting women and girls from exploitation and harm, especially relating to the organization and facilitation of prostitution in Singapore. So, this provides an additional lever to the police's larger vice management strategy to do stuff like raising public awareness, uh, maintaining a stronger enforcement tempo and enhancing international cooperation to target cross-border syndicates. So there are tougher penalties on human traffickers, it targets irresponsible lease of premises to prevent them from being used for vice activities, and also allows them to deprive syndicates of operating space, especially in the heartlands. And I thought that this was a very interesting use, of the Women's Charter, because primarily when we think of it as individual women's rights issue or legislation looking after marriage, this ventures into a new space, which is about human trafficking. We've kind of looked at the different parts of the Charter. We've looked at individual rights of a woman. We've looked at how marriage should be conducted between a man and a woman, how divorce is treated. And then finally, we've also seen that it affects issues of human trafficking and vice. In the Global Gender Gap Index of 2020, when they looked at how well countries did in closing the gender gap, Singapore still ranks 54 out of the 153 countries listed, with a gender gap of 72.4 percent. Top country, Iceland, has a score of 87.7 percent. Around one in five marriages in Singapore ends in divorce. So. This seems to indicate that we're not in a utopia yet, right? And we probably will never be. But it seems to indicate that the one Charter will continue to need to exist, both to enshrine existing achievements already made, but to also serve as a platform for us to continue having such discussions, the ones that we've already had so far in this podcast, you know, around different issues, as well as issues that may continue to arise as we evolve. So for sure, the Women's Charter is needed and
1: should continue. I mean, whether it's renamed Family Charter is a, a different point. If anything, there there is this question of, should we enshrine, not just in the Women's Charter, but in the Constitution, our commitment as a, as a society, as a nation, as a country, to gender equality, uh, because we do say in the constitution that there should be no discrimination on race, language, and so on, and so on, right? So why don't we put gender there? The Women's Charter is needed because there's, the protections for women, specifically for women, are still needed because look at the incidence of sexual assault and sexual violence that continues right
0: yeah i mean we did a whole episode on campus sexual assaults, and it's very very shocking and how prevalent it is in singapore it was the
1: concern about this continuing incidents despite the enhanced penalties and so on that drove law minister Shamugam to to kick off that gender equality review
0: which is now going on you know that's a great segue to to, to my last point right which is that exactly as you mentioned we've realized that legislation can't be the whole solution. It has to be a response at a community level, at an awareness level about what's leading to some of these habits and practices, what's leading to some of these offenses. And actually, more importantly, what are some of the things that we can do and celebrate that can actually help us be a more gender equal and just a much better society for all the individuals involved in it? One of the things that under this new push, that law minister Shanmugham has announced there is a virtual dialogue session titled Conversations on Women's Development, which was gathering feedback on issues that affect women at home, schools, workplaces, and communities. They were meant to provide this white paper to ex- examine how gender equality and respect for women can be more deeply ingrained as in fundamental values from health. He basically said things that AWARE has been saying for 35
1: years. It's mindset change. And how do you bring about mindset change? The mindset that men have a right to women's body, that men are superior, that men are the ones who go out and do the work and women stay at home, and all, all these things which the norms are, have been changing and continue to change. But there is still some a prevailing view about gender roles, that men do certain things and women do certain things. But he made a very significant statement that we have to start from a very young age. We have to start finding ways to educate our children so that they grow up not seeing men and women as having different roles. There's mutual respect. how do we do that? Boys wear blue and, and girls wear pink. That, that girls grow up to be teachers or nurses or what have you, and men become engineers and doctors, yeah?
0: Since the beginning of Singapore's identity as an independent country, gender issues have been quite fundamental to our identity, right? So we have the Women's Charter trying to tackle polygamy all the way at the beginning, but now it's tackling issues such as gender roles, tackling issues such as even our perceptions of how women should be treated in society. It seems like it's going to continue being that platform for that conversation. My personal view is that the ongoing effort by the government to address women's issues is a strong statement, but as you mentioned, it's not the first statement that has been made. Many different activists and advocates have been saying the same thing for a long time. And I'm very curious on how they're gonna to bring together all these different views to to dialogue and discuss this. Because as we mentioned, the worst thing that's gonna happen is for it to go back to a patriarchal lens and then for it to be a debate on like, oh like this is these are prevailing norms.
1: One big challenge which the policymakers are going to have to grapple with is whatever you come up with in terms of policies and schemes, whether legislated or otherwise, is the very likely resistance you're going to get from some conservative groups who are religiously motivated. That's going to be a major obstacle to our efforts to entrench gender equality
0: as a fundamental value in Singapore. As long as people are able to share their truths, as long as people are able to hear from the different kinds of you know, lived experiences that we have in society. I think we're able to to maybe form more nuanced and holistic policy positions, but I'm more interested beyond policy positions. How do we influence norms? How do we influence habits and, and behaviors that people are embodying as they grow up? One simple act that can be taken by
1: the state to show its commitment to gender equality, in my view, is to redefine national service. The fact that NS is only required of men defines gender aware has long argued i've personally long argued that we should redefine national service so that all young singaporeans have to do that 18 months 20 22 months whatever it is of national service some will go and do military service boys and girls The others who who are not required for military service, they go and be trained and for that time work with social service agencies. There's going to be a growing need for people to help, you know, with the uh, elderly and so on, growing social needs. And why don't we get our young people to, to lend a hand in that area?
0: There's so much that happens because of national service, either because of the nature of military service itself, you know, with... The masculinity and but also and there's a sense. Uh, you know, I would love to do a whole podcast episode on national service, but I think there's also the sense of sacrifice made, right? And so therefore, we are owed, quote unquote, owed something in in response to our sacrifice. But actually, if it is truly a duty that we all serve, then it should be equal across Exactly. You know, Margie, just to to take us home on this. We're at 2021 right now. We know this white paper is coming out, but you know, in your personal view, in the next 10 years. Women's Charter or not, you know, what do you see as the future of gender issues, of women's issues in Singapore? I'm pretty positive because because of this review that's going on,
1: and I think we must must look at it as a positive step, and uh, all of us should try and participate. Think about the issues, question attitudes that we may have, and, and be ready to, to change you know, to, to embrace new approaches. Just go to the AWARE website, which is aware.org.sg. There's a wealth of information there about all these issues and more, the issues that we've talked about and more. And um, it can help you understand the issues better. And I you know I go around, when I talk with people in Singapore, old or young, and they, they offer some view or another on what's happening in Singapore. They're not happy about something. I always encourage them, do something about it. Write to your MP and organize your thoughts. Come up with what you think uh, the alternative policies or scheme should be. And then write to your MP, write to reach, write to the media, write to the prime minister's office. In other words, be an active citizen, don't just sit there and grumble
0: about things, organize your thoughts, or marshal your arguments, and do something about it. I love that, and it's uh, it's definitely advice for me, too. So on that awesome note, Margie, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for providing history, context, perspective, insight into this very, very challenging topic at the onset, but actually very meaningful for our society. So thanks for coming yeah. on the show.
1: Well, good that you're doing this.